Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast. You know, as the uh, political season heats up, churches and individual Christians sometimes feel pulled in different directions. How should God's people react or act to all of the political issues, parties, and candidates? Does our faith call us to be actively involved in promoting or, or fighting against certain issues and candidates? Or should the church abide by a strict separation of church and state and avoid any discussion of political things? Well, politicians often talk about weighing the religious or evangelical vote, and should the church even be seen as a cohesive voting block? How do church leaders engage in the political process without endangering their church's religious nonprofit status? Lots of issues to consider here. And even though your mother maybe warned you about never to talk about religion or politics in mixed company, we're going to do just that today. We're going to talk about both of those things. And our guest to help us today is Christopher Norris. He is an ordained Baptist minister focusing his studies on such topics as church and democracy, just war and pacifism, Christian ethics and public life. Currently, he's uh, teaching Christian ethics at Wesley Theological Seminary. And he's the co-author of a book called Kingdom Politics in Search of a New Political Imagination for Today's Church. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. You know, you point out that churches often fall into one of two traps, either avoiding politics entirely or pledging allegiance to a particular issue or party. Well, I'm curious, why do you characterize these as traps? Yeah, well, I think that there are easy temptations uh, for, for the church, especially in the way that we've been conditioned to think about what politics is. Uh, and so, so I think that American culture... Uh, media, the way politicians speak, just in, in general, the way we think about politics, uh, teaches us to think about politics um, in a pretty narrow sense, and, and in a way that, for, for academics, kind of goes back to the early 20th century uh, to the sociologist Max Weber, who says that politics consists solely in uh, the attempt to influence uh, the use of coercive power. So it's directed and bound completely to thinking about the state or political parties um, or electoral politics in that sense. And I think that that determines the ways that, that churches also think, and Christians, individual Christians, think about interacting in politics. We think about politics as something that is separate from and outside of the church, that the church can either opt into and directly engage by entering into partisan debates or lobbying for specific issues, or the church can avoid. And I think that we see churches do both of these things. Um, I think especially in today's climate, it's pretty easy for a lot of churches to think that, as, as we see political rhetoric and, and debate and how vitriolic um, and hostile it can be, we think that politics is something that is just purely corrupting and perhaps evil. And so it's something that can only tarnish the church's true mission to you know, save souls or, or help people develop spiritually or grow closer to God. Um, and it can be an impediment to that. So it's easy for churches to think that politics is something outside of what the church's mission is, and so it's something to be avoided. 
or other churches think that who have a sense that you know the church's call is to you know go out and change the world and transform the social order uh and the only effective avenues for doing that historically have been through policy changes or, mm-hmm. or laws and so i think that it is because of a kind of a, a limited imagination uh that we see these as the only two avenues so i do talk about them as pitfalls or traps because it, it seems like most churches and Christians think of these as the only two options. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's because we, we have been conditioned to think about politics as in this narrow sense, that it's all about power struggles between firmly entrenched partisan camps. Well, you write about uh, something you call the deeply and inherently political character of the church. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that uh, what that means in, in basic terms is that the church is political in and of itself, apart from any engagement in direct political activity. And so what we do in the book is to look at the ways churches are acting this out. But I think that it's a, in, in another way, it's a deeply scriptural vision of what politics is. And so we've begun to talk about politics in terms of Apart from just you know engaging directly in, in the influence of power, politics is really about allegiance, citizenship, and character. And I think that we see this in scriptures about the the allegiance uh, we offer, who we offer allegiance to, what citizenship we we claim, who we belong to, um, and the character that we display as we pursue a kind of a life of common good, you know, with and for our neighbors. Um, and I can talk about these kind of individually. I think that thinking about citizenship first, I think this is sort of the most obvious aspect of it. So you see in, in Acts, uh, Paul uses, uh, all, all these are, are kind of a variation on the Greek word polis. That's kind of typically been the uh, kind of root word for, for what we mean by politics. And this word is used in, in these three senses throughout Scripture. And so in Acts, Paul talks about uh, polis, a, a version of Polis to talk about his citizenship. Um, it cost me a large sum of money to get my citizenship, he says in Acts uh, 22, or talks about our citizenship in heaven. And so the same word refers to both our earthly national citizenships and our belonging to the people of God. And in uh, another case, it, uh, I think that it refers to where we place our allegiance, where our loyalty lies. Uh, in Philippians 3, Paul contrasts the enemies of Christ, who he says their God is their belly and their minds are on earthly things. Uh, but for Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. So here it's be, it includes who we belong to, but also where our loyalty lies. Who do we look to for authority? Uh, and then in a third case, the same the same word, uh, version of polis, uh, refers to our conduct, or I think even a better way to think about it is our character, both our public and private behavior. So in uh, Philippians 1, he says, let your manner of life, and that word manner of life is, is a variation of polis there, uh, be worthy of the gospel. And later he says uh, in, in Acts, Paul, Paul was looking intently at the council and said, brothers, up to today I've lived my life, my polis, my political life, before God with a clear conscience. And so here we see it, this word politics refers to how we live our lives. Mm. And so I think that it has these three meanings, and this is a deeper sense of what politics is than just the kind of the narrow uh, kind of striving for you know, power in terms of state policies. And I, and I think we also, you know, looking at Paul there, I think we see this in, in the life of Jesus also in his ministry, that his life was about, and ministry was about inaugurating a new kingdom, which obviously has political connotations to it. And he says it's not a kingdom of this world, but it's definitely a kingdom 
that comes in the world. It's to be embodied in the world by the church, which you know began as a group uh, kind of claiming an alternative citizenship to the citizenship of the Roman Empire. So I think that you know Jesus was executed as king of the Jews. There are all these political uh, notions surrounding Jesus' life and ministry as he was a contrast to politics as usual. And I think that as, as the church, as the body of Christ that's called to carry on that mission, we see that it's at root a deeply political mission. You know, I, I think uh, maybe a lot of people get hung up on that word itself, uh, politics. Uh, when I think of politics today, I think of a highly partisan game played by professional politici- politicians who are less interested in working toward any public good and more interested in being you know, fully consumed by some sort of competitive gamemanship conquering the other party or, or opponent or, or their opponent, uh, we'll often hear in the political discourse today, I'll fight for you. Uh, that, that word fight keeps coming up over and over again. And everything is a fight. Everything's a contest. And uh, the enemy, unfortunately, is usually the opposite party, or roughly in this country, half of the population. So we spend our time plotting a conquest over the other half of society. That, that hardly seems like a Jesus-centered endeavor. Given today's uh, highly partisan culture, I think some people just recoil at the at the very idea of putting politics and church in the same sentence. So maybe it's that maybe it's that word politics. Would it would it be helpful to use a different term like civic responsibility to describe what you're talking about? Right, uh, and and that's a question that I often get. And, and, and in fact, one of the um, kind of major kind of starting points for for the project that we began was a work by a sociologist here named James Hunter who says just that, that, you know, it may be time for the church to leave uh, the language of politics behind and just talk about our public life and our public responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think in some ways, I want to say yes, but I also think we lose something when we want to disregard the term uh, politics. And, uh, I see the way that you're, you know, talking and how it's misused. I mean, one recent example is in the opening prayer of the Republican National Convention, where the pastor said, you know, we're here to fight against our enemy. And I completely expected him to say Satan, and he identified the enemy as Hillary Clinton <laughs> and the Democrats. <laughs> so so it, 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 we, we do think of politics, like I said, in, in terms of striving for power and this competitive sense of, of overcoming other people and winning. Uh, but I think if we kind of in, in line with the scriptural vision that I just talked about, if you think about one of the early Christian fathers, uh, St. Augustine, he talked about politics in terms of love, that politics is um, what a, a group of people who are gathered around and, and, and focused on the common object of their love. That politics is, is really about orienting ourselves to, to the causes that we love, to the uh, people that we love, that it's not this competitive tearing down of one another, but working for you know, the common good, for, for what is good for the society, for the group of people that we live in. And I think we see that same sense of politics and Martin Luther King, who talked about politics in terms of an improv- uh, improvisation of love. And, and if we begin to think of politics in that way, that it has this deeper sense to it, um, that it doesn't have to just be competitive partisan rivalry, but it's really a coming together. We don't see many examples of that uh, in electoral politics, but that's why I think we need to begin at a different level and think about how the church itself and church activities are political. That may eventually involve churches advocating for specific policies. Uh, but I don't think that it starts there. I think it starts at a deeper level that has something to do with working together for what mm. we love. 
For your book, you visited churches around the country to see how they're engaging in the public square. What did you find? Yeah, um, well, we went to really diverse churches, including Rick Warren's Saddleback Church, an evangelical megachurch in California, Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was the home of Martin Luther King in Atlanta, a emergent church, a pretty progressive uh, Presbyterian church, and a Mennonite church. And so we saw examples of, of the type of politics that we're talking about kind of in all of these uh, churches, I'll, I'll, but I can give a couple key examples okay. of what I'm talking about. So I'll start with the Mennonite Church. So Prairie Street Mennonite Church is in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. It's home to one of the kind of more famous Christian ethicists, but it's a small church now of, uh, between 100 and 200 people. But being a, a Mennonite Congregationalist type church, they have this church practice of uh, an open mic prayer request time at the end of every worship service. And so this is one of the key claims of the book is that these ordinary church practices that we are involved in, be they worship practices or mission practices or ministries, that all of these have some ability to form us both spiritually, socially, uh, and politically, that there's some, some political content to these practices. Uh, and, and, and so this is a kind of key example of that. Open mic prayer time can last anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes after the service. They've done this for, for years. Hmm. Recently, a group of Hispanic immigrants has come into the kind of uh, small town where they are uh, and has begun attending church, but th- they haven't uh, spoken English or don't speak English. Uh, and so through a translator, they've become involved in the prayer time and have began citing prayer requests about family members who have died trying to cross the border or uh, relatives who have been kidnapped in Mexico or places like that. And so as the congregation has encountered this new group through this ordinary church practice, it's led to a couple of political responses. Um, One, on just a congregational level, the church uh, began having conversations about how to best welcome and show hospitality to to these Hispanic visitors and, and members. And so in conversations with the families, they began talking about ways to start Spanish uh, language service or incorporating more Spanish elements into a hybrid worship service that will involve both English and Spanish. So a way to form these two different language groups into a a kind of revelation vision of the uh, diverse community in a way that they can worship together as one body. Um, But then also, as they've heard these prayer requests, uh, the church began to explicitly advocate for immigration reform. So writing to Congress, uh, members participating in demonstrations and talking about it in sermons from the pulpit, all because of this ordinary church practice that encountered a new group. One, one other example comes from Ebenezer uh, in Atlanta. So this was a church that was pivotal in the civil rights movement, home of Martin Luther King. And so today they um, carry on this legacy by advocating for the uh, Kind of poor in their uh, underprivileged uh, neighborhood in which they find themselves, and seek for justice, uh, seek justice for this community, and so they do this. I think through through their worship. So again, the kind of the political nature of worship. They they tell both the the kind of liberating story of Scripture and Luke, Jesus saying, "I've come to bring good news to the poor," as well as retell the story of their involvement in the civil rights movement in their worship, so through their songs, through the sermons, through special occasions and commemorative services. They, they weave these two narratives together to form their identity into a people who are both deeply scriptural, but see that scriptural identity as projecting them into the public and into politics. And so a few years ago, they decided that they were giving too much money out of their operating budget to care for the people who are around them 
And so they decided to partner with groups that were already involved in the community, and they built this huge community resources complex on the church property that now houses both faith, faith-based charities and some that are not faith-based charities to offer, uh, and some that are government agencies, the Department of, Child, of Child and Family Services, to partner and do things in the community that the church just wouldn't be able to do on its um, And so I think that both of these examples of uh, kind of ordinary worship practices leading to political partnerships or political activities is, is, is more of the political vision that I think is needed now rather than jumping directly into partisan activities and lobbying or avoiding it altogether, but allowing your worship and how you're formed to think about Jesus as king and, and Jesus' call to care for the least of these may lead to, uh, to political action, but it begins in the church and in the church's own identity. Did uh, you find anything in your visits that uh, showed you a, a disconnect where any of these churches were not quite getting it in terms of how you'd like to see uh, church and politics uh, shake hands? Yeah, I mean, so one example would be, this is both a, a negative and a positive example, at Saddleback, Rick Warren tries to abstain as much as possible from politics to the point of even uh, not allowing pro-life groups to set up, you know, shops out or booths outside of the sanctuary uh, because it's so seeker-sensitive and it's so evangelistically focused. He sees political activity as an impediment to that and so wants to keep all politics outside um, of, of, of the church and out of the church's worship. But on the other hand, the church's mission projects are deeply political, partnering with the Rwandan government uh, to set up health care clinics and to train local pastors to grant civil marriages so that widows, when their husbands die, don't lose all of their property. And so there I think that there is a bit of a disconnect in that the missions activities that are deeply political are disconnected from any politics and worship. I think that operates on a deeper level in the church where, the, where they are integrated, but the church leadership doesn't acknowledge that. Another one would be the emergent church, Solomon's Porch, uh, in Minneapolis, where they understand politics in this way, but have a really strong commitment to partisan neutrality, meaning that if anybody gets up to give a, uh, an announcement about a political rally uh, or advocate for a specific policy, which they allow in the worship service, but someone has to be able to give to stand up and give the opposing viewpoint. <laughs> and so it's, it's centered on this idea of fairness and, and not being partisan in any way, but it's still caught up in the sense that politics is about this competitive rivalry. And as long as we allow both sides to have their say, then we're doing our job rather than trying to seek some deeper way that is grounded in finding some agreement about what we love. You know, I think a lot of uh, pastors and church leaders feel that... Uh their hands are tied or they're legally bound not to get too close to political issues or especially political candidates for fear of uh, losing their religious or nonprofit status. Uh, how do you navigate that with, with church leaders? Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing to say about that is that there have been very few cases actually of churches losing their tax exempt status uh, because of what they've said don't take that to mean I think that it's a good idea for churches to do that, but I think a lot of churches in some ways hide behind that. So the Presbyterian church that we visited in Baltimore said, you know, we, we, we're committed to not being political because we have this historic commitment to separation of church and state, and we're legally bound not to um, because we would lose our tax exempt status. At the same time, this church, the pastor, you know, 
spoke in front of the Maryland General Assembly to advocate for LGBT rights and uh, was involved in a uh, campaign television ad. So, so I think that in some ways this allows churches to say we're not being political, we can't be political, which, which while still doing some things that are political or just like some more conservative churches not engaging at all. And so I think that it's important to maintain this distinction between religion and politics, but not use the idea of uh, losing our tax-exempt status as a, a crutch to, to not train people to think politically in churches or think that what we're doing in churches has no political influence at all. Well, when, uh, when you look out at uh, where we could be or where we could go, where should a church or an individual believer begin to engage the political realm in a healthy and faithful way? Do you have some starting points that you recommend? Well, the place where I would recommend starting is to think about politics, both as kind of scriptural and in terms of love. I think that uh, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in, in Germany during uh, the uh, kind of Nazi regime, is a Good, has a good way of framing this that I think is a helpful way to start. He talks about the church being necessarily political, but in two different senses. So in some way, he says, the first way the church is political is beyond any national or party politics, like, like you and I have been talking about. But the church is political itself just because of its character and mission coming from a savior who had a political mission, coming from um, a sense of politics that has to do with where we pledge our allegiance, what citizenship we, we hold primarily. Uh, and what our character is. But this is before and apart from kind of engaging in any specific issue or with any candidate. And so thinking in this way, the church can can engage politically and we can think about being formed politically even on a local level. So we can be involved in political activities like certain social ministries, homeless shelters, soup kitchens, community gardens, and finding solutions for uh, public problems beyond direct political policies. And I think that this is where churches need to, to start, um, rather than jumping directly into partisan activities or finding kind of national electoral solutions for these, or just avoiding it altogether and thinking that the church only kind of deals with matters of, of, of the soul and with spirituality. To, to begin in this area and think that you know the church has some political responsibility itself, but we can do this on a local level. And only then when the church is doing that and properly understands um, itself as political, then it can begin direct engagement and advocacy for political processes. So one of the things that, stories that kind of influenced me during uh, this research project came from from Ebenezer, and it was uh, a public transportation issue. So the church is in a really low-income neighborhood. The Atlanta public transportation wasn't coming out uh, into that neighborhood, so people who lived there uh, were having a tough time keeping jobs because they didn't have public transportation to take them to the jobs. One solution would have been to avoid any kind of direct political engagement, and the church could have set up really extensive and complicated carpool process to take, you know, have church members drive people every day, you know, to their jobs. Or the church could have advocated in front of the city council to extend the public transportation uh, into that neighborhood. And so they opted for the second option and accomplished that. And, and I begin to think that that's moving into politics, even on a local level. But that's not something that's necessarily dangerous. It's something that's there to help your neighbors, and it comes out of the church's commitment to care for the least of these. Mm. And I think that if, if that type of political action seems to be 
a faithful way to show compassion and care for those in your neighborhood, then that's only that's then it seems that there's no reason why churches can't move beyond that mm-hmm. and advocate against the death penalty or perhaps like Ebenezer advocate for, you know, universal health care policy. Mm. Well, our organization uh, here, Group, offers a number of resources to help churches and individuals enter into the public square and look at things with a Christian worldview. One of those is Lifetree Cafe. It's a one-hour weekly experience that churches can sponsor in their communities. We call it the We call it a conversation cafe. It's a guided discussion on topics that people care about today. We often tackle current issues such as immigration and racism, the kinds of things that we've been talking about today, and engaging people in in civic discussion. And uh, you can find out more about that at lifetreecafe.com. We like to employ what we call fearless conversation. But, uh, Chris, we found that uh, people today need some help learning how to talk about controversial or potentially divisive issues in civil, caring ways. Uh, it seems like uh, maybe that's a starting place as well, just how we converse with one another. Uh, how do you help people talk about uh, explosive issues without blowing up? I think one of the reasons that people in churches may avoid some of these things is they're afraid of blowing up their church because of people disagreeing and that devolving into into something really destructive and, and divisive. So how do you help people navigate uh, how to talk about things without uh, exploding? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think one of the causes for that is a lot of studies have shown recently that because of the way we think about politics, people and Christians included tend to identify more with their political affiliation than they do their church identity. Mm. Um, and, and, and so I'll answer this in, in, in two ways. One, on a kind of surface level, I think that it's important to, to not be afraid to talk about these issues, that some of these controversial issues, immigration reform, racism and violence, gun control, like these things have something to do with our Christian witness. And so to avoid talking about them altogether, I think is abdicating some responsibility we have uh, to, to be faithful and responsible Christians. One of the churches that we visited had a uh, series called What's at Stake in the Election. This was back during the 2012 election. And so they just had sort of community, you know, town hall meetings w- with the church community where people were allowed to, you know, voice their opinions and, and, and people talked it out. So I think offering venues for that is, is important. I, I do understand uh, the churches are afraid of <laughs> doing that because because people do tend to identify more closely with party and allow those identities to could, could potentially cause divisions. Uh, so I think on a deeper level, churches need to do a better job of reorienting our identity as Christians. That as we're, we are American citizens, we're also Christians, but we're Christians first. Uh, and I think a lot of times, especially in election seasons and when controversial issues come up, we tend to forget that. Mm. And I think a lot of this be- just begins simply in, in worship and in Christian education and in small groups and in you know the relationships we form with other Christians. And I think to intentionally engage with churches in ways that reform the way that we think about our identity as dual citizens and, and uh, maybe correct for our uh, kind of misdirected allegiance through, through you know, various ways, and, and I think this can happen uh, just by being intentional about this stuff in worship and talking about, you know, that some of these things that we're doing, baptism, you know, is, is a practice that reforms our identity and makes us Christians before it makes us citizens of any particular country or members of any particular, uh, you know, political party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Good thoughts. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Very helpful stuff that uh, is thought-provoking, especially in uh, this political season that we find ourselves in right now. Your book uh, called Kingdom Politics in Search of a New Political Imagination for Today's Church is available. And we thank you for joining us on Holy Soup today. Take a moment to uh, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And we'll see you next time on Holy Soup.